The capital region, New York State, and most of the country has been on pause for about a month now. And the longer-term effects of weeks of quarantine and social distancing are starting to show themselves. The Times Union has been following it closely. On this episode of The Eagle, we'll go over the top stories in the Times Union this week. We'll have an inside look at the daycare landscape in the capital region. I think we're looking at a really significant uh, child care crisis when we come back. And we'll get a sense of what it's like to be a newspaper photographer during a pandemic. At the end of the day, it's, it's just about getting through this thing. And if the art suffers slightly, it's not the end of the world. This is The Eagle, a Times Union podcast, a look inside our newsroom. I'm Jessica Marshall. If you're enjoying this podcast, take advantage of all the Times Union has to offer and support our efforts to bring in you award-winning journalism by becoming a Times Union member today. Go to timesunion.com slash subscribe. Welcome to The Eagle, a Times Union podcast. I'm Jessica Marshall. Let's start with a look at what appeared in the Times Union this week. I checked in with editor Casey Seiler via video chat. I'm here with Casey Seiler for a look at the top stories in the paper this week. Now, I understand this week started with a little bit of controversy. Can you talk about that? Yeah, Ken Crow early Monday morning um, got word that the wife of Sergeant Randall French, who was a Troy police officer, had made uh, an outreach, a plea on Facebook, um, looking for people who had recovered from COVID-19 to please donate blood plasma, which is, of course, part of a treatment um, that is being uh, used and examined as a potential uh, treatment for, for folks who are suffering from coronavirus because her husband um, was on a ventilator battling the illness. Ken wrote that up and also noted that Sergeant French is known uh, for being uh, the officer involved in the killing of a man named Edson Thevenin from about four years ago over in Troy. Thevenin allegedly uh, fled a DWI stop and um, he ended up with his car crashed into uh, a concrete embankment and uh, he was shot by Sergeant French. This case has been the subject of intense controversy and continues to be um, in Troy and around the region and indeed around the state. It is the case that was rushed past a grand jury by the former uh, Rensselaer County District Attorney. Uh, Joel Abelov, who was the former DA, his handling of that case resulted in him uh, facing state charges, which are ongoing. Um, it is the subject of a federal lawsuit brought by Mr. Thevenin's widow. The Times Union has covered all of these developments, I think, deeper than any other news outlet. It is, of course, um, uh, impossible that we would not mention the fact that Sergeant French was the officer at the center of this controversy, even though, of course, his uh, tragically being struck by COVID-19 is not directly related to it. But obviously, um, for supporters of Sergeant French, there was you know, great outrage that was expressed on social media against uh, mentioning the case um, within that story. And so uh, I was responding to angry Facebook comments uh, Monday and uh, and into Tuesday. And just as you well know, I uh, did a Facebook live that was scheduled for early Monday afternoon. And uh, uh, I think did it end up being uh, more heavily attended than any other session we've had pretty much? Yes. 
By a, by a large margin. I believe the phenomenon is known as hate watching. And we absolutely understand that you're going to get this kind of very strong reaction anytime we cover uh, cases of alleged police misconduct. And that will continue to be ongoing anytime you mention any of the participants. So feelings are strong and we understand that. Now, on the flip side, you recently wrote a column that got a much different response, a more uh, pleasant response. Can you talk a little bit about that column? Yeah, this is a column that I wrote, um, I guess, about a week and a half ago now. And it was about this case that, once again, I mean, I just spoke about how social media and Facebook can can sometimes bring out uh, a great ire. But this was a case where I saw a tip that we had received on our Facebook page from a woman named Amy Witonski, who lives in the Helderberg neighborhood in Albany. Her daughter uh, is home quarantined. She herself, Amy Witonski, has a condition that leaves her immunosuppressed. So her daughter, uh, as well as her husband and herself, have been trapped at home longer than most people um, due to coronavirus. Her daughter got a kite. Uh, they took the kite out. It got caught in power lines, couldn't bring it down. They called National Grid, the, the power utility. A worker came over and worked assiduously to get the kite untangled from the wires, but it ended up being a little bit ripped up. And the worker came back a couple of hours later and anonymously dropped off a new kite for the little girl. Uh, just an absolute simple act of kindness that really resounded not only with Amy Watonsky, but with anybody who saw her account of this on Facebook, and, and I think anybody who, who read the story. The name of the worker who I spoke to, the National Grid worker, is, is Mike Whaley, who's a 23-year-old from Wineskill. And he said, even if coronavirus wasn't going on, I still probably would have done this gesture. And I have no reason to doubt that whatsoever. But the point of the column was that kind gestures like this mean so much more when everybody is as stressed out as they have. I got very good feedback to the column. I know that Mike Whaley's name has rung out across the region as somebody who I think is an example of you know somebody making actions that I think we could all we could all follow to make this whole situation a little bit better for uh, for everybody involved. So thank you. That's definitely thank you for asking about it. It's definitely the flip side of uh, of the previous subject. Absolutely, I was just so happy to read that story. It just put a smile right on my face. A couple of people told me that it got them to go out and actually fly a kite, <laughs> which I wasn't even thinking about when I wrote it. But I have always found, I haven't flown a kite in years, but I've always <laughs> found that if you go out and you fly a kite, because it's a kite that's high up in the sky, it requires you to look up, which I think a lot of us don't do. And this is, I'm not speaking metaphorically, I think just physically, it makes you feel good to look up into the sky. It stimulates the vagus nerve, which, which calms you down. Yeah, exactly. I'm not a doctor, so we'll have to check with some doctors on that. Anyway, are there any other stories you want to highlight from the last week or two? I'd like to note a special feature that we um, have put up on timesunion.com, a memorial page that links to um, the obituaries and stories about people in the region whose lives have been um, have been lost to, to COVID-19. Um, I think it's a very powerful page. And you know, unfortunately, the decision was made that we have enough of a critical mass, and I'm not trying to make a pun there, um, of 
these obituaries, and I'm sorry to say, we're almost certainly going to get more. We've lost um, people who are well known, um, like Walt Robb, who was, as far as we know, the first victim. You know, a beloved and well known local sports team owner and former GE executive who was in his early 90s, as well as folks that were not well known to to the general public, but who who led led remarkable, interesting, notable lives. Of course, it's very hard to tell. We see the obituaries and Sunday's edition of the Times Union had, I think, a run of obituaries that was longer than any we've seen before. But of course, only about one or two of those mentioned COVID-19 as the cause of death. Obviously, there is no requirement for uh, listing cause of death in an an obituary. But I would encourage people, if they have lost um, a loved one or a friend, to COVID-19 and they would like us to consider writing about them to please contact us. And that's um, that contact information is available on timesunion.com as well. All right, well, thank you very much for checking in with us this week. We'll check back in with you next week. Jess, good talking to you. One of the business sectors hardest hit by the COVID-19 pandemic locally appears to be daycare. With many parents now staying at home, Capital Region daycares have seen a colossal drop in enrollment and some have even closed their doors. However, essential workers who must leave their homes to work still need a place for their children to be safe during the workday. Times Union education reporter Rachel Silberstein stopped by a daycare that remains open in the region to get a sense of how they're operating during the pandemic and how it's impacted their business. I mean, we every single classroom, we, we like, you know, broke down and cleaned top to bottom. And um, it, it's not a place where I don't feel comfortable or safe. Mm-hmm. Um, Rachel, you wrote an article about your visit to a daycare last week. Tell me, where did you go? I went to the Kids Lodge in Clifton Park. It's part of the YMCA. And it is one of the few daycares that are still open during the pandemic. It was interesting. Everything sort of changed. It's a super sterile um, daycare environment. Um, Children are scanned for symptoms every morning. It's a much smaller group. Used to serve around 200 kids. Now there are about 50 kids spread out over, you know, the building. Their exceptional precautions are taken to make sure that no germs get in. The curriculum's changed. Children, teachers are talking to children about washing their hands, personal space, bumping elbows. And if they're old enough, they, they're usually pretty aware of what's going on. How did you get into this daycare? I mean, did you actually go in the building and see, you know, classrooms yeah. and such? I wasn't able to. They're only using four classrooms, and each of those classrooms has a door to the outside. Mm-hmm. And each door has an orange cone in front of it. Parents no longer come into the building. I couldn't come into the building. They almost, like, shooed me away when I first got there. So I, we had a conversation outside. There's no one besides teachers and children are allowed in the building. We, we managed to have a conversation outside and we saw little kids sort of peering through the glass. We got, you know, our photographer got some great photos of that. So, um, and we're always talking about health and keeping ourselves healthy, washing our hands. Those are all practices that we always, you know, instill. So it's not something that, you know, yeah. we don't talk about, but we're just obviously heightened to talk about it more. And that the door was sort of like opening and the automatic door kept like swinging <laughs> open and shut. And I thought it would like mess with the sound, but it was fine. And they talk about social distancing, but you know, they have a smaller classroom now. There are different, I've spoke to a lot of um, childcare advocates and coordinators in the capital region. And it seems that it's sort of a different group of kids that are there. It's a combination of like 
essential workers who were already had their kids in daycare and also a new contingent of children who were cared for by grandparents or someone with a compromised immune system who can't take care of the kids anymore. So, and I think it's just been like a, an upheaval for, for these kids. Um, but the, you know, the teachers, they do a really good job at like creating a sense of normalcy. They like teach them ABC games with washing their hands and try to make it fun. And you know, it's, it's just amazing that it's still open amid all this craziness. Now people are still having to pay daycare tuition, right? Yes. Some other states have made daycare free for essential workers or at least frontline emergency workers. Mm-hmm. Um, New York has basically allowed each county to modify its criteria for doling out subsidies for daycare. Mm-hmm. So they can raise it. It used to be like, you know, if you're 20% of the poverty line, then you can be eligible for daycare subsidies, which, we, you know, we know daycare is like exorbitantly expensive. Sure. Um, like more expensive than college these days. Um, so I, I think that what the state has done is allowed localities to modify those rules. So either extend those waivers to people who are, you know, up to 85% of the, of the average income, or some of them are just waiving co-pays for essential workers, but it's really just varies uh, county to county. So I think advocates are saying that the state should take a more comprehensive approach. And the other thing the state can do is create like more industry specific guidance because I think one thing that's been hard for the teachers is figuring out like how much contact to have with children no matter what they do they're going to have to have contact with children and put them at risk but these social distancing guidelines for essential businesses don't necessarily apply in in a daycare setting where you have to like comfort children and they cry and they need care regularly especially like little babies. Sure now have you talked to any parents who are sending their kids to these daycares? I caught one parent on his way out, um, and he was actually not at the daycare yet. His par- he and his wife were both working from home. I think a- right now, he and others are starting to look into daycare for the future. I think initially, people didn't know how long the crisis was going to last, mm-hmm. so they sort of were hoping they could wait it out, and now they're realizing that they need something a little bit more long-term, even though that, you know, hospitalizations have sort of plateaued. It still seems like we're in here in this for like another month at least. So a lot of daycares have seen like huge declines in enrollment, but that's slowly starting to come back. And I think that's another concern from advocates. When people start to enroll their kids and come back to daycare, you know, what will be left? Because the landscape has just changed dramatically in the last couple of weeks. Do you think that a lot of these daycares or a lot of the daycares in the region will be closing? So a lot of them already have. The childcare landscape in the capital region was made up of a combination of larger center daycares and home-based smaller daycares. And those smaller facilities are more sustainable in a lot of ways um, because they are able to, you know, people can operate them out of their homes and they're, they have lower overhead. And, you know, just the the business model doesn't work anymore. And and they're able to pay sort of their workers living wage. So those smaller daycares were like really a huge part of the daycare landscape. In the capital region, I think there's something like 100 kids for every 14 um, daycare spots. Some places it's worse. Um, So I I think we're looking at a really significant uh, childcare crisis when we come back. There's, of course, stimulus funds that are supposed to help some of these small businesses get back up off the ground when the uh, pandemic is over, but the cost of rebooting a, a business is astronomical. Like it's really 
some of them are trying to like stay in touch with their families and stay in touch with their clients, but like they're going to lose staff, they're going to lose families and to get build that back up is really going to be a challenge. That sounds pretty scary. Yeah. Advocates want state and federal officials to, to provide more financial support to really stabilize the industry. But we've needed federal and state investment in daycare for years. It's been sort of the availability of, of affordable, high-quality daycare has been on the decline in New York and all over the country. Um, but this crisis is really um, might hopefully motivate more for investment. the issue. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's something that pulls at your heartstrings. You, my son goes here. Oh, wow. And, and obviously I feel comfortable with him being here because I see how hard the teachers are working. And I mean. Oh, I think the public health aspect is really important. Um, I think another thing advocates want is some sort of hazard pay. Um, Childcare workers are like really terribly underpaid um, mm-hmm. already. And, you know, daycares operate with really small margins and don't really can't really afford to pay daycare workers more and so without like a significant investment from the federal government or state entities these workers are putting themselves at risk every single day and it's impossible to really protect yourself i mean they clean as best they can but like you can't there's no real way to protect yourself in that type of environment when you're in close contact with children what was the mood among the daycare workers that you talked to there at at the kids lodge you know they're troopers they really felt committed to their jobs the one daycare worker who I'm going to be profiling in this Sunday's Heroes series, her own child goes there and she said she knew the kids. And I think it, since it's the why, you know, they, they in general are like highly regulated and, and have extensive cleaning and health regulations that they have to conform to. And she said that she was comfortable, you know, her own child was there, but of course there's always a risk and they realize that it's a job that needs to be done. Sure. Uh, it seems like a challenging issue from all angles here to cover and to experience. So I yeah. thank you for uh, joining me to give me a little look inside your story and we'll look forward to seeing your profile on Sunday. Okay. Thank you so much. After the break, what's it like to be a news photographer these days? We'll hear from Times Union photo editor Will Waldron. If you're enjoying this podcast, Take advantage of all the Times Union has to offer and support our efforts to bring in you award-winning journalism by becoming a Times Union member today. Go to timesunion.com slash subscribe. Welcome back to The Eagle, a Times Union podcast. I'm Jessica Marshall. Under normal circumstances, news photographers have a tough job. They have to get that shot. During a pandemic, that doesn't change. But how one goes about it, that's a different story. I caught up with Times Union photo editor Will Waldron, who had just spent a busy night chasing down the perfect photo of a helicopter. What's happening? How are you doing your job right now? You know, photographers go remotely anyway. That's not been different. We work off our laptops out of a car. So that hasn't changed. What has the events we cover, I mean, everything's so different. There were so many planned events and gatherings that just aren't there anymore. There's no sports. There's just no public gathering at all. It's just food drives, parades, portraits taken outside someone's house so uh, we don't expose ourselves. That's basically it. <laughs> Have you uh, found any new ways to be creative about photographing these things? 
Yeah. Well, I mean, we're shooting stuff in the driveway. So you're kind of arranging someone in front of their house. Some people have gone in. It's kind of their call, you know, if they feel safe or not. I've yet to get a good shot through a window. I would like to do that. Uh, <laughs> but it, it, all de- it all depends what it is. Now, in terms of safety, how have you and your team, uh, what kind of precautions have you been taking? What kind of things do you have to keep in mind when you're out there? Yeah, well, this is something we've ramped up as we've learned more. You know, in the early days, um, we were going, going about as we do things. And now, distancing, you know, that was immediate. Big on hand washing. Um, I've been able to secure a few uh, masks for the guys so they can uh, protect themselves and others that way. And just cutting, cutting back on exposure, you know, uh, we're trying to do everything outside and if it looks risky, the photographer can call the shot. If they don't want to take that chance, then, uh, they can, they can pass. You know, it, it, at the end of the day, it's, it's just about getting through this thing. And if the art suffers slightly, it's not the end of the world. I know you mentioned this a little bit before about some of the things that you've been photographing, but is there anything specifically that you photographed that was really interesting or, or really special? Well, last night I was on a helicopter chase. Wow. So <laughs> we, had, <laughs> we had a tip that a bunch of patients were coming in to a, uh, a hospital in Troy which did not materialize actually, <laughs> some plans changed. Uh, so I, I went out last night, I could see a big storm coming in and it was like 11 o'clock. Oh boy. And uh, so I went up and got into position and I have a little radar app on my phone. Mm-hmm. So all of a sudden I see these helicopters coming up out of New York and there were three in a row and they didn't come to me. So I had to switch gears and get over to another hospital. Oh, wow. Um, Where did you position uh, yourself? Out, like outside on the street or? Yeah, well, well, well the, hospital, the hospital I went to, Samaritan, they, they would land in a field and okay. you can see it from the road. Gotcha. Um, and unfortunately, these, these helicopters landed all being met on a rooftop where you really can't see anything. But I wasn't significantly harder to get that shot. <laughs> yeah, there's not much to see there. there. There's a helipad at St. Peter's, which you can see from the road. You know, a helicopter coming in, that's one thing. But to see medics taking out a patient, that communicates a whole lot more. So these helicopters were allegedly carrying people from New York City, patients from New York City up to our hospitals? Exactly. Yep. Oh, wow. And how did you, how do you photograph helicopters at night? I mean, I, this is just a simple photography question, but how, <laughs> how do you do that? Well, the, cam- the cameras are pretty good. You know, helicopters have lights, but it's, it's kind of a roll of the dice, mm-hmm. you know, how you, how you get that. It might be a little blurry. It might not be. You know, if they land, people have to see. I sure. mean, the pilots have to see where they're going. So I kind of, I counted on that. Excellent, excellent. Well, that is a really interesting one for the for these unprecedented times. Is there anything else that you want to share about photography in the time of Corona? It's easy to fog up the, your uh, viewfinder when you're wearing a mask. I will say that. So that that's been that that's makes life a difficult. special consideration. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Uh, but when you're out there, I tell the photographers, "Why well, you're the eyes of the community at this point." A lot of people are, are holed up at home not able to get out or see what's going on. 
you know, and the same with some reporters too. They're probably not out and about as much as they do. So you literally are the eyes of the paper and the community. And we're out there documenting this stuff. And not just for daily, for, uh, for history. We're going to look back and wonder what life was like, and you're going to show it. I mean, there are lots of little signs that say closed, and it seems trivial, but when you look back, it'll, uh, it'll add up. Wow, that's quite a mandate. Well, thank you so much for joining me for this. This, is, this has been really interesting, and I, I'm going to look at the skies now for helicopters. <laughs> but uh, good luck with your work today. Okay, yeah, thanks, Jess. That's it for this week. I'm Jessica Marshall. We'll be back next week with another look inside our newsroom here at the Times Union. In the meantime, head over to timesunion.com for the latest news and features, and stay safe out there.